0: to highlight and support independent bookstores. They discuss the books they've written, the books they're reading now, and the art of storytelling. If you love books and you're curious about the writing world, you're in the right place. Hello, everyone. It is Wednesday night, and that means it is time for Friends and Fiction. We have a great show in store for you tonight, so let's get rolling. I'm Kristen Harmel.
1: I'm Mary Kay Andrews.
2: I'm Christy Woodson-Harvey.
0: And I am Patty Callahan-Henry. And this is Friends and Fiction, four New York Times bestselling authors' endless stories to support authors, independent bookstores, and libraries. Tonight, we are so excited to welcome Jessica Noll, the author of Bright Young Women, one of the fall's most
3: buzzed-about new novels. So before we get to Jessica, make sure to check out all the pieces of our Friends and Fiction community at Friends and, spell out the word and, fiction.com. There you will find links to everything Friends and Fiction, our weekly podcast that drops on all major platforms every Friday, our bookshop.org page where sales support indie bookstores, and where Books by Us and all of our guests. I mean, it is a heck of a bookstore, are available at a discount. Our weekly email newsletter and our Friends and Fiction Official Book Club with Brenda and Lisa.
1: And speaking of Brenda and Lisa and the book club, um, their October selection is The Followers. Make, mark your calendars for Monday, October 16th at 7 p.m. when Brenda and Lisa will be meeting on their separate Facebook page for their live online discussion with author, Brady Godfrey.
2: And our Friday podcast for last week has stopped. Ron and I talked to Melinda Taub about her new novel, The Scandalous Confessions of Lydia Bennett Witch, which is a reimagining of Pride and Prejudice told from the perspective of the youngest Bennett sister. And coming this Friday, Patty and Ron will be talking to Ashley Winstead about her latest, Midnight is the Darkest Hour.
0: Now, before we bring Jessica on, Mary Kay, you're in the middle of your book tour. Can you tell us how it's going on the road?
1: Um, well, in fact, we are pre-taping tonight's episode of the show because the four of us are going to be all together in Maryland for the big Friends in Fiction live launch event for Bright Lights Big Christmas. Yay. I'm so grateful to everybody out there in our Friends in Fiction community who has been turning out for my tour events so far and to all of you who are planning to come to my remaining event- events. Tomorrow, I'm in Richmond, Virginia. Then I have a weekend swing through Alabama. Then I've got a bunch of events in South Carolina and a three-day swing through California in mid-November. On December 2nd, I'm actually going to be the parade marshal of the Cashier's North Carolina Christmas Parade. And the whole weekend promises to be something out of a Hallmark movie. So find all the details and ticketing links for all of my tour stops at my website, marykandrews.com.
0: That is going to be so cool. I'm so excited
3: for you. (laughs) All right. Now, without further ado, let's welcome Jessica Knoll. So Jessica Knoll is the New York Times bestselling author of Luckiest Girl Alive and The Favorite Sister. She also adapted and executive produced the film Luckiest Girl Alive, starring Mila Kunis, who was, and this was all released on Netflix in
1: 2022. Jessica grew up in, in the Philly suburbs and went on to become an editor at Self Magazine and a senior editor at Cosmopolitan, where she worked with our dear pal John Searle.
2: I didn't know that. that was so fun. Jessica's books have been published in more than 40 languages. She lives in Los Angeles with her husband and their bulldog, Beatrice. Her third novel, Bright Young Women, was just published on September 19th.
3: Which means her dog and my granddaughter have the same name.
0: Oh, that's funny. I think about that. Oh, how funny. Alan, that's can funny. you bring Jessica on? <laughs>
4: Welcome, Jessica. Hi, Jessica, Hi. Welcome. Not to start off on a very somber note, but um, I think that's an outdated bio because Beatrice has crossed the, the rainbow. Oh, um, but so that we have yeah. we have a new light of our lives, Franklin. Our other bulldog. Say hello.
3: Oh, hey. guys, Denise <laughs> Miller's strongest name Franklin, and, too.
0: And Jessica, <laughs> the exact same thing happened with... Janine, we mentioned her old dog, and she came I on know. and said, "Oh, I have a new dog, Franklin." So it's this apparently, so oh my amazing. god, I was like, this "Deja." Is Franklin's new dog, <laughs> <laughs> Well, we are so
4: sorry to hear about Beatrice, it's but it's okay. We're yeah, she Franklin's really broke our hearts, but oh. she's brought us a lot of joy and laughter and snuggles again. So, <laughs> oh well, we are
0: so glad to hear that, and we're sorry yeah. to have started off inadvertently yeah. on a
1: somber
4: note.
2: We're very <laughs> sorry about you that. We would wanted
4: this. Way that the conversation oh. started off. It was about
1: <laughs> we're just so trying to just honor, honor, honor today, but, Yeah, we're,
4: we're honoring
0: Beatrice. Beatrice Beatrice's wishes, exactly. <laughs> <laughs>
4: all right.
0: Now, Jessica, let's dive into talking about Bright Young Women, which was inspired in part by the real-life sorority targeted by America's first celebrity serial killer in his final murderous spree. An Amazon editor's pick the book got starred reviews from all four publishing trade outlets, PW, Kirkus, Library Journal, and Booklist, which is a tremendously wow. rare occurrence. So air high five to you, Jessica. That was yeah, amazing.
3: <laughs> so
0: in the novel, which I absolutely loved, two women from opposite sides of the country are brought together by violent acts of the same man and become allies and sisters in arms as they pursue justice. So that's kind of a broad overview of what the book's about. can you tell us a little bit more about the book and then one of our favorite questions on friends and fiction what's the book really about at its core
4: yeah so I started thinking about this book and the characters and who they might be back in 2019 there was a new docu-series that came out a, it had released previously unheard um, audio recordings from uh, Ted Bundy, who I don't name in the novel at all. Um, but everyone was kind of a buzz about him and his crimes and how brilliant and charismatic and handsome he was. It was kind of all coming back for a new generation. And I started thinking how awful that he was what was remembered. Um yeah of that of of his crimes and that we didn't remember the victims and i just i just was curious i was like what do we know about the victims and i very quickly found hardly anything um and i also found that much of what kind of cemented around his legend and lore was not true, was not based on fact. He wasn't that smart. He was not that charismatic. Women often reported that he gave them the creeps. Like they were not bamboozled by him. And the press really made it out to be like he was so handsome and charming that they were willing to go off with him. That's not how it happened. And so I just thought like what a disservice to remember by all accounts these really bright young women who were mostly college women, had exciting careers and life events ahead of them. Um, And to just remember it differently and from a woman's perspective, because I think we got the story from a man's perspective and it just solidified in the 70s and 80s. So um, that's where the idea came from. And then I don't know if I should go right into the question of, that's what the book is about, but what it's. What's the question? Like what it's wait, really- wait. So what is the book really about as its heart, yeah. at, at its heart? What, what were you, what
0: do you think the heart of this book is trying to say?
4: I, it's about unresolved grief and trauma oh, and, and how you live with it uh, when you're not going to get closure or justice.
0: Yeah.
4: Um, and that was something a lot of the family members and friends of the victims had to figure out a way to do. And it's also something I've had to figure out how to do in my own life with traumas that I've experienced young. Um, And so I I didn't think that's what the book would be about going into it, but I came out the other side realizing, oh, ultimately this is what I was trying to
3: say. That is awesome.
2: So interesting how that happens. Yep. Mm
3: -hmm. Yep. We don't see it till the other side. So you've kind of pinpointed the moment you thought it was interesting, right? Mm -hmm. Like you thought you saw this docu-series you thought, I need to tell this from a woman's point of view. You were more curious about them than you were about him. But how did you go from that idea stage to reaching out to Kathy Kleiner, mm-hmm. one of the Tallahassee survivors who you mentioned in acknowledgments? How yeah. did you go from idea to whoosh? Kathy, yeah. like, how'd you get there?
4: I mean, it, was, it wasn't it was a straight shot. And it wasn't like one thing, um, as I'm sure you're all aware you know yeah. writing a book can be just such a beastly <laughs> undertaking um but Kathy was one of the first people i reached out to i'd read a story a profile about her in rolling stone that just really struck me um oh, wow. her her resilience and her grit like really just blew me away and i reached out to the writer of that profile and asked you know clearly you know you've been in touch with Kathy for this interview would you feel comfortable reaching out to her and asking me if it was okay if she, you know you passed along her contact info to me and Kathy agreed and was very generous um with her time and with her vulnerability and um her memories and I really came away from it I mean she was one of the one the first ones to say to me like if you really looked at him, like, he wasn't that handsome. He wasn't that smart. He wasn't that great, you know? And that's what, you know, everyone... She was like, he wasn't ugly, you know? Uh, He wasn't a moron. But, like, he wasn't the, you know, this very exaggerated version um, that, you know, kind of brought him to celebrity status over the years. Um, And I think hearing that from her really... It just lit something in me where I was like, "This is so messed up that this is how it was remembered," yeah. you know.
3: Yeah. And, and, and I think I was going to say, I think
4: like a little bit of like anger and indignation is like always a, for me at least, a good starting point to just write, you know, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> right because you feel for like sure. you're writing I'm really pissed off.
3: <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. I'm going to write some wrongs. I'm going to yeah. set the record straight. I'm going to show the other point of view. Yes. Well, in addition to interviews and all the research and the reading. You did some on-site research. When you and I met in Seattle, yeah. you took a day while well, the rest of us shopped or played in the <laughs> snow. You took a day and went to the, one of the settings in the novel. And when I talked to you that night, you said you were really scared walking yeah. back up the trail from the lake, not because of something that was happening, but because you had gone there. So talk to us about that research, the on-site research, how it affected you when you were doing it.
4: Yeah. So I wrote most of this book during the pandemic, and this proved very challenging for a number of reasons, which is this is the first book I ever wrote where the settings were not places that I was intimately familiar with. My two other books are set in the Philadelphia suburbs where I grew up and New York City where I lived for 10 years. So I didn't need to do any research to write those books and the characters and the people who live in those cities and, you know, how they dress and what, you know, what their homes are like, all these things I was very intimately familiar with. Tallahassee, Florida is a very different part of Florida than, you know, Miami or the beaches that I had got, or, you know, Disneyland when I was, gro- now, I get confused now because I live in California. I'm like, is Disneyland <laughs> in California or D- Disney World? Disney is World in Florida. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Um, so, You know, I, it was very important to me to, and not only that, but I was, the time that I was setting the novel in was the 1970s, which was not a time period that I was familiar with. So it was all the more important that I actually get myself to these places, but it was challenging because it was the pandemic and I'm a huge hypochondriac and I was scared to fly and travel. (laughs) So I made it to Tallahassee. That seemed the most important to me mm. early, as early on as I could because at yeah. least Seattle was like Pacific you know, Northwest. I live on the West Coast now. I've been to Seattle a bunch of times. I have friends who live there. So like that I could kind of wrap my arms around. Tallahassee was like, I had like a proper research trip there. But I never quite made it to Seattle for a research trip. So we, Patty, you and I were in Seattle for Winter Institute um, back in the win in the winter, aptly named. Um, <laughs> and it happened to take this it ha- happened to take place this year in Seattle, which I was like this is fate. I have to make it to some of the places from my book while I'm there. And the book was finished, but I still had some editing passes to do. So I knew I would be able to kind of like infuse it with a few more, um, really authentic details. Um, if, you know, I made the time to visit these places. And one of those places was Lake Sammamish where two of Ted Bundy's victims, um, went missing, um, on a gorgeous hot summer day in 1974, um, by all accounts, there were close to 30,000 people at the beach that day. And he took two women without hard, hardly anyone seeing. And wow. uh, they they did recover the remains of one of the, the women eventually. But the other one who ultimately I, I used a little bit of her story to inspire my character, Ruth. They never found her remains. They don't know what happened to her. There really wow. was no closure um for anyone and it was a mystery as to how he got them to leave with him and what had happened to them. So, I wanted to go to Lake Sammamish. I rented a car. I drove out there. It was really cold. It was mm-hmm. snowing, which is snowing. Un- unusual for Seattle. Um, and I got there and it was obviously deserted because it was not a beach day. <laughs> and I parked and I went to the water's edge and I my phone was on like 10% battery. And, um, I'd forgotten to bring a charger in the rental car that I had. And I got to the water's edge and I was like, took a bunch of pictures and kind of just breathed in, breathed out, like wanted to really feel what it was like to be there. And then I turned around and there was a man in a hoodie coming toward me and there was no one else around. And (sighs) I just, my heart just was in my throat and I I had, I think like 8% battery and I immediately picked up the phone and called my husband. And I was like, I just need to be on the phone with someone in case something happens. And I had to get back to my car and he was coming toward me. And, you know, a couple feet before we were about to cross paths, there was a trash can and he threw out some trash in the trash can and then turned around and went back on the trail. And I was like, oh my God, but it really, um, it really frightened me. It really frightened me and it felt, um, it felt scary to be a woman in that moment, you know? And I, I think that every time that happens where I have a, oh God, yeah, it is scary to go through this world as a woman. I'm, it's like, I'm. I'm surprised and shocked afresh because I'm like, I live my life how I please and no one tells me yeah. what to do. And then you And want- I have
3: agency over I my life. Agency. And yeah. I yeah.
4: And then every now and then you're just confronted with one of those moments where you're mm-hmm. like, Oh wow, none of it matters right now.
3: Yeah. Um,
4: and really feeling how how horrible that must have felt for the young women who just like just had so much, so much to look for I, it makes me emotional to think about. It. They had yeah. just had a lot to look forward to. It really makes me emotional. Yeah,
1: yeah. I yeah. think yeah. it makes. I think it makes every woman emotional who's felt, um, first felt vulnerable, unsafe, anxious, and terrified, and then once that moment passes, enraged. Yeah, that a stranger can can evoke that kind of yeah. Uh, emotion and that kind of reaction yeah yep absolutely yeah well you know um it's funny i i do know tallahassee um <laughs> and i had a um i had a friend who was living in a sorority house she had just moved out um uh a previous year before those murders and rapes happened Oh wow yeah yeah and um you know i think everyone <laughs> who lived in a sorority house at the time um, has never gotten over that. Anyway, there's a great 1999 article in the St. Pete Times, which is, well, now we call it the Tampa Bay Times. That's my hometown paper too. But it was the hometown paper of Margaret Bowman, one of the real life Tallahassee victims um, who I have an idea. that She might be the inspiration for your character, Denise.
4: Um, So all of my characters are, you know, they're amalgams of, people that, and, you know, that I heard about. And then also just uh, uh, my own imagination. But um, I did, you know, I, I did obviously research a lot about the Tallahassee victims and um, about Margaret and Lisa. And I just thought Margaret sounded like such a, such a firecracker, you yeah. know? And I, I did get my, um I was able to access some audio files um with interviews from her sorority sisters talking about her. And I just thought she sounded like such a force to be reckoned with. And I loved that she, you couldn't fit her into a box, you know, that, you know, she was, she loved clothes and she looked beautiful in clothes and she liked to date, and like she just had a really exciting life. Yeah. Um, and the idea that this just ultimately kind of ordinary loser mm-hmm. kind of came in and stole her life from her. I again going back to that feeling of just outrage. Like, who yeah. are you to put your hands on her? You know, like she was going to be something special in this world. You could tell.
1: Yeah. You wrote you. Um, that article from the from the paper, the um, the reporter wrote that Margaret did not know the person who killed her. He meant nothing to her, and he had nothing to do with any moment of her twenty one year old life except for his last few seconds. Now that article doesn't name her killer, and neither do you in your novel. Mm-hmm. And we we refer to a little bit, but you can you talk a bit about the decision not not only to focus on the women, but also specifically not name. The man. Yeah. The, the man who
4: shall not be named. Um, (laughs) I think I knew, I think I knew I didn't want to name him, but I didn't know what I would refer to him as. And I think initially I was probably just working with like the man or that man. But then as I did more research and more of the trial and deposition transcripts were coming in, uh, the court reporter kind of solved uh my quandary for me which was he was always referred to as the defendant in all the transcripts oh, and I, wow. I just thought that was so um fitting because mm. he so badly wanted to be remembered as being someone who had talent um and kind of sophisticated understanding of the law and mm. he didn't you know he was someone who bopped around from kind of uh concentration to concentration like there was a time where he was really uh interested in psychiatry and but he didn't really have great grades he didn't apply himself he had average intelligence he had to falsify his transcripts in order to be admitted to uh law school and he barely made it 6 or 7 months before he was arrested for the attempted murder of a Utah woman and so by the time he was quote, representing himself at his own tra- murder trial in Miami. He'd been a convicted, because he was ultimately convicted of that uh, attempted murder of the Utah woman and then was, you know, before he even ended up in Florida. So by that time that he was being written about as like a promising young law school student, he'd been a convicted felon for like four times as long as he'd ever studied the law. And he obviously had a whole council of attorneys um, who helped him, you know, with that case. And in the transcripts, they were all referred to by their last names because they weren't the defendant. They were actual mm. attorneys. And I was like, you just can't cheat the the court reporter. Like, it is yeah. your job to record accurately the proceedings of the court and you're the defendant. My friend, (laughs) you're the defendant. You really like what, once I was like reading that over and over, I was like, wow, um, I've got to use
1: this. Yeah. Kind of, it kind of, uh, underlines the importance of, of the kind of research you do because you never know what you're going to find. Right. Yeah.
4: Yeah. You don't know
1: those questions. I never know the questions I have to ask until I'm scratching my head and going, I don't know how that works. Yeah, yeah. Do you see any? Do you see any um, comparison to the um, Idaho murderers? I do. Um, I, in particular, what we
4: know about the witness who was in the house, um, about how she came out of her room, kind of in in the middle of it, and did see someone did see him and did see that there was blood and did hear a bit of a scuffle. And then people were like, how did she just go back into her room and close the door and go to sleep and not call the police? And I felt really bad for this girl when I heard people kind of questioning her reaction because um, what was happening for her is very similar. So there, there was a real eyewitness um, in the Florida state university case. Right. Um, and very similar to the, the eyewitness in the Idaho case, she saw a man at the front door and just thought it was their house boy, um, who was a member of their sweetheart fraternity, or just like maybe one of the girls had snuck a guy in. Even though she kind of knew like something's off and what it is really, it's, it's, it's called environmental evidence. So oh. what we're used to our environment, so a, a sorority house and by all accounts, the house that the students lived in, in Idaho, they're party houses, you know, like, um, people are over at all hours of the night. Um, people are drinking, people are having fun. I mean, this is no judgment. That's what you should be doing in college. You should be enjoying yourself. And so people are up at all hours in the night, and sometimes boyfriend and girlfriends, you know, or couples get into couple spats. And so someone might be crying and and whatever. This is a protective thing that comes over you when you see something that you can't really fit in with your normal experience of life, which is like our normal experience of life is not there's a murderer in my house. The normal experience of life is like, oh, someone, you know, they're having a fight or someone's just staying up too late and had too much to drink. I'm going to go back to bed. It's a self-protective thing that happened. Mm -hmm. And so that was very similar to, I think it took ultimately 20 minutes for them to call the police in the Florida State University case from the moment she saw him at the door because she went upstairs and was like, I, I think everything's fine. I can't really mm-hmm. tell, you know? And so there was that lag. So there is that similarity between those two cases there.
1: It's a whole it's processing thing too. Yeah, definitely.
4: Yeah.
2: Okay, so let's talk a little bit about the police reaction to Pamela, who is the president of the sorority and the daughter of an attorney, and she is also studying to be an attorney herself. So when she sees the killer leaving her sorority house, she sees him clearly. She has the presence of mind to look at him carefully and gave a description immediately. But the police didn't believe her. They fixated on Roger, the person she mentioned she initially thought she had seen, even though she said right away that she knew it wasn't him. She even brings the police a picture of the killer after she meets um, him for the first time with Tina, and still they dismiss her. So can you talk to us a bit about this piece of the storyline, and was it based on reality? So
4: this is probably a great example of how I, in fiction, kind of invented a scenario that I wanted to overall speak to a general kind of sense of a lack of urgency and seriousness around how the police in all the states where Ted Bundy operated in kind of showed. Because what I was most angry about when I did research was the fact that before he ended up in Tallahassee, he escaped prison twice in Colorado. Um, first in Aspen and then in Glenwood Springs. And in both instances, the Aspen prison escape, he because again, he wanted to represent himself at his trial for a murder of a woman at an Aspen hotel. Um, He argued that he should be allowed to use the the law library at the courthouse without shackles on because it was like a violation of his rights to not be able to, you know, he was being hindered to do this research. And so the judge allowed it, but the deal was that an armed guard had to be watching him at all times. Well, very quickly, the armed guard got pretty lazy with it and would st- and step outside to have a cigarette and leave him alone. And it was only the second story. So he just one day just opened a window and jumped out. And they caught him a week later. They locked him up um, in another Colorado prison in Glenwood Springs. And one of the prison guards did report to the sheriff there. He's been moving around the tile in the ceiling and he's not touching his food. He's getting really, really, and he was already a small guy, but it was like, he's not eating anything and he's getting skeletal. Like I think he's Planning on trying to like wiggle through some ducting. And the sheriff was like, it he'll never do that. It'll never happen. Sure enough, he does it. And because of these two instances of police incompetence, three women ended up losing their lives. And he was in custody. And no, no. one was ever held to account for this. So while I don't, I don't, it's not necessarily the Tallahassee police. I do think everyone was like, we don't know what happened here. It was probably pretty inconceivable to think that someone who operated in Utah, Washington state and Colorado would end up Mm -hmm. in Florida. Like I don't, it doesn't, I don't hold anyone to account for like not connecting those dots, especially at a time where like things weren't digitized, but more so I did want to show the general incompetence of what happened in Colorado. And so I kind of put that into the Florida piece of it. Mm really drive home this idea that like the police did not really take him that seriously as a threat. Um, And why not? And then why weren't you held to account when he escaped and three women lost their lives and three more were traumatized and injured and they did not need to be, they should be alive to this day.
0: Yeah, they absolutely should be. So some of the book is told from Pamela's viewpoint and Another piece of the book is told from Ruth's viewpoint. So I believe she's based, not totally obviously, but in a very loose way, on Janice Ott. Right? Is sort of in, in as much as Denise's
4: yeah, story is based on the. She is one of the Lake Sammamish victims in that? Like all we know is like she kind of went missing that day, but we don't know much about kind of who she was or what became of her. You know, Mm.
0: that absolutely makes sense because I I was wondering, I feel like her story seems perhaps a little bit more fictionalized than Denise's, perhaps because Mm. because of that, but also I think maybe because you chose to tell her story from a first person perspective. So Mm -hmm. I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about Ruth and how difficult and wrenching it must have been to get inside the head of this hopeful young woman Mm -hmm. who you knew was going to have to meet such a tragic end.
4: Um I think I think the thing with Ruth was I've always carried around this low grade fear that seems to become inflamed whenever I have something really good happen to me. Like I remember when I got my first book deal for Luckiest Girl Alive and as I'm sure you all know sometimes the the, the gap between when you get your book deal and when the book comes out in the world can be A long period of time. So I think I had like 18 or 19 months to go. And I remember thinking, I'm so excited for this book to come out in this world. I'm so proud of myself that I wrote a book and I got a book deal. Um, What if I don't, what if something happens to me and I don't get to see this dream of mine realized. And it was almost too scary to speak it out loud. So I wouldn't. And then like a couple years later, a really good friend was getting married. And one night she confessed to me that she was so excited about her wedding, that she was afraid something was like going to happen to her and she wouldn't get oh, to wow. it. And I was like, whoa, there's something here, you know, where it's like, I don't know if it's a, inherently female thing. I don't know if this is like across the board, but it's like something you're so excited about, um, and feel so passionately about that instantly you're like, I'm not going to get to enjoy this. Life doesn't work that way. And so I had, I think was always looking for a place to put that feeling, um, and work that out. And so Ruth was kind of my depository for that. And so she, weirdly, she was the easiest to write because i just was able to like let it all out in her and it was just really important to me that she was a character who kind of started off struggling really stuck really stuck in life um and that her arc was someone who was like becoming a butterfly you know like was like about to fly the coop and all these exciting things were happening to her. And she was finally asking herself difficult questions and coming to terms with who she was. And I really wanted it to be the tragedy of this case. Once again, is not what the judge said to Ted Bundy, which is that he had a bright future ahead of him. Like he actually was <sighs> a bright young man in his sentencing remarks, which is where the title Bright Young Women comes from. But the tragedy was that Ruth didn't get to realize her dreams. Like, that was so (laughs) important to me in telling this story.
1: Yeah. I think, I mean, I think all of us could tell you instances of, like, this is too good to be true.
2: Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Totally. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, I think that's kind of, like, a natural. It's. I mean, maybe it's, I don't know. I've never thought of it before, but I've definitely had those, like, well, Everything's
3: going too well. It's all gonna yeah. When's the other I mean, shoe drop? drop? I was gonna yeah. say it's a shoe drop thing. Yeah. Like, okay.
4: <laughs> I, I got more.
3: That- i have got more good than I deserved. So what? What's yeah. next? Yeah. Uh,
4: it is a, a weird thing of feeling like I don't think I deserve this. So some, yes. the universe is going to come in and and kind of you know balance things up somehow or other.
1: Yeah. I always think of the Roadrunner cartoons when the giant anvil falls on the Roadrunner. Yeah. I'm looking around for an anvil. Yeah. <laughs> Is it today? You're not going to be after, after book to work Not today. Jessica, I'd love to hear more about the Hollywood side of your career. I know you wrote the script for Luckiest Girl Alive and that you're the writer on several other projects currently in development talk to us about the experience of adapting your own book and what you're working on now on the Hollywood side of things. Although writer's strike, I don't know. Yeah.
4: Yeah. I can't really talk too much about that. I mean, there's just, it's also a bunch of stuff in development. So it's like not that exciting because it's all like very slow going. And um, I mean, Luckiest Girl Alive was a great example of slow going because it took seven years for that to make its way from book to screen, um, and changed hands many times between studios and producers and directors and, you know, had been offered to actresses who had turned it down and then we would like kind of sit on it for a while. And so all of that to say, it's very exciting when it all finally comes together, but like it so rarely comes together. <laughs> um, so it, it's hard because I try, I, I love having the balance of both. I love having the screenwriting stuff and the book writing stuff. And I did find that when things did come together for luckiest girl alive, that being a producer and being and screenwriter and being on set was one of the most fulfilling, uh, kind of parts of, of my kind of, Creative life because I loved being surrounded by other creative people and like troubleshooting problems, like in the moment. Like, okay, yeah, we have this scene written, but now that we're actually here and the actors have to act it out and we have to stage it, it's actually not working. And here's why. Oh, know? wow. And like figuring things out together. I just found that to be so much fun. And it just yeah. like really made you feel like you were part of a like you were all on the same team trying to solve the same problem and you don't necessarily get that that same support when you're writing a book because it's yeah. all, you know, you have your editor and your agent and your readers and all those things, but like ultimately they're not going to be as motivated as you to like figure things out. So um, it was really nice to just have a little bit of like
1: backup. <laughs> now, was, that, was that your first experience? At, yeah. Uh, adapting
4: it was yes yes how fun
2: i ever wrote for the screen that's great
4: well um we saw
2: on instagram a few months ago that you had just finished the first draft of your fourth novel so yeah you give us any little hints or is this a top secret project still
4: yeah it's i mean nothing and everything is top secret because it's more just like everything changes so much before it finally is out the door, you know, like the earliest draft of this book, like I wouldn't even recognize from like what, you know, is going to hit, you know, be on the shelves. Um, so I am using this time during the strike to get ahead on my next book and get the quote unquote, kind of crappy first draft that we have to write, you know, in order to like see it and see where its strengths are and where the weaknesses are and what needs work. Um, But I'm really excited about it. And this is probably like something a little spicier. I've not really gone the spicy route before. So there's a (laughs) little more of that this time. So that's a little sneak peek into what you can expect from book four. We can't wait. We'll
3: be... Looking, I was gonna to say, other. come on,
4: yeah,
3: Absolutely. <laughs> oh, no, pressure. Pressure. <laughs> no pressure. Don't you love that when you have
2: a book come out and the next day someone emails you and they're like, I stayed up all night reading it, I loved it. When's your next one coming out? And, and you're like,
3: what? oh, this was it's like having a life. newborn, yeah. And people are like, I'm so flattered, but also.
4: Maddie, I say that all the time. Not that I've ever given birth, but I'm like, I. It must be the way mothers talk about, like the hormones just like wash away all the endorphins, wash away the like, misery of like, the, or the difficulty of birth and whatever. And yeah. you're like, I want another one. Like, yeah. it feels like that's what writing a book is. It's like, so like, true. You
2: put the book out and you forget like all the things that made you be like, I'm never doing this again.
4: Right. This was because awful. It, it's there's, so great to share it with people. And it's yeah. so much fun to be out there in the world and like hear people's reactions to it. And you're like, yeah, that wasn't
0: so bad. I'm definitely going to do, do that. Yeah. There's <laughs> no other explanation for why we all keep doing it again and again. Right. <laughs> well, Jessica, it has been such a pleasure before we let you go. Can you tell our viewers where they can find you online?
4: Oh yeah, so I'm on Instagram, Jessica Noel, author. Same thing on TikTok. I guess I'm on Facebook, but I really like I have I don't even know what my login is anymore. So <laughs> don't, I don't if I don't write back or anything. It's because I like literally never go on. Um, but Instagram and and mostly Instagram, you can find me. But I'm on TikTok too. Fantastic. Well, good. But we'll stay. Uh, we'll follow you and stay up to date on
0: news of your next spicy book. We're all excited about <laughs> it. Exactly. <laughs> so, to all of you out there, please make sure to check out Bright Young Women, available now. It is like nothing else you've read this year, and it'll stay with you for a long time to come. You, you can do. get your copy right now at a discount in the Friends and Fiction Shop on bookshop.org. Thank you so much, Jessica, for being here with us tonight. Thank you Jessica. for
2: having me. <laughs> good to see you. So nice to meet you, Jessica. Oh, bye.
3: <laughs> <laughs> we lost her. okay, everyone out there. Don't forget that you can find all of our back episodes on YouTube. We will be back next week with our friend, Thridy Umregar to hear about her latest, I love this title, the Museum of Failures. Mm. We all have one, right? Like <laughs> yes. I, I keep thinking about what would be in my Museum of Failures. We have a great episode. You could you could probably fill it up for me. We have a great <laughs> episode in store for you and we cannot wait. So thank you for being with us on this really amazing episode with Jessica. And we will see you next week. Good night, y'all. Good night. Good night.
0: Thank you for tuning in. You can join us every week on Facebook or YouTube where our live show airs on Wednesday nights at 7 p.m. Eastern time. Also, subscribe to our podcast and follow us on Instagram. We're so glad you're here.